This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Noel Davis, a scout camp outside Norfolk in the middle of the night. And I'm Leah Richards, the empty swimming pool underneath the stage in the theatre. Why are we these things? Because they are the spookiest of things. I mean, there's a lot about that scout camp that I was on that wasn't great, but definitely being in the forest at night in Norfolk was the spookiest part of it. Is Norfolk spookier than other counties, or...? A certain absence of history, I think. Ah. Not much has happened and all the ghosts have moved in. Ghosts are no APs. Because I would have thought that places with more history would be spookier, like, um, Wiltshire. Can't move in Wiltshire without tripping over some history. Too many ghosts is the thing. Too busy. They've all gotten tired and retired to the country. (laughs) Well, we're not maybe the most informed about paranormal means and paranormal research, so we have turned to the expertise of one of the other podcasts on the Stimulus Network. Joining us from the Spooktator is Hayley. Hayley, hello. Hello, how are you? I am very well, thanks. We are both kind of melting in the sun, but I'm sure there's a cryptid or another that's basically a melted person. <laughs> Ghosts are known for being slimy, right? That's that's a thing. You know, ectoplasm and stuff. Oh, yes. I mean, that's kind of gone out of fashion. But yes, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you wouldn't mind giving us just a little bit about yourself and about the spooktator, who are you and what are you doing here? There's probably a nicer way of phrasing it than that. It's very suspicious. Well, my name's Hayley Stevens. I'm one of the co-hosts of the Spooktator podcast. And the podcast basically examines strange news items and topics from across the media, culture, society, and all sorts of weird and wonderful stories that we discuss. Outside of that, I do have a day job, but... One of those day jobs that's not anywhere near as interesting as the hobby of ghost hunting. Yeah, it is. It's it's nothing to do with it at all. But outside of the day job and the podcasting, um, I've been a paranormal researcher since I was 18 years old. And a lot of people roll their eyes at that. They just presume that I go chasing ghosts, but that's not the case. I'm one of those boring ones who tries to solve what's happening. So when someone has a weird experience or maybe they catch something strange on camera or on, I don't know, an audio recording or something, I try and find a rational explanation for it. Are there some common themes in the rational explanations you come up with? There are, yes. More often than not, it's people just perceiving things which are perfectly normal as being paranormal. And usually that's because the place that they're experiencing it is said to be haunted. And so they have that sort of on their mind and that influences the way in which they rationalize um, or explain what it is that's happened and then the other side of that is people who might be bereaved and are expecting maybe to experience something from a deceased relative so something quite mundane happens and you know it must be their great aunt still giving them a sign that she's still around so very much a context dependent spookiness then yeah absolutely and one of the things that I mean, when I first started doing this, I was more interested in the weird things that were happening and trying to find an explanation for them. But as time has gone on, I've become 
more interested in why certain people interpret things as paranormal when somebody else wouldn't perceive it to be that way and it does have a lot to do with pre-existing beliefs and sometimes underlying social or health conditions as well can have a role there too. Well that actually does lead very neatly into one of the stories that we found because the Eureka Alert news service has lots of different types of science news and engineering news not so much in the way of paranormal news, I think there's dedicated websites for that sort of thing, but every now and again we do have one come our way, including this piece of research from the University of Pennsylvania all about the spread of superstitions. I could ask for your thoughts uh, going through the press release and some of the paper as well. Yes, yeah, so this one was really interesting. When I was reading about it, I just kind of started to apply it to things that I do in my life and that, you know, the people that I work with and live with and my friends and so on. And I've got a lot of friends who identify as skeptics. So they're part of the kind of skeptic movement. And that's not like the flat earth movement or the climate change denial movement where they claim they're skeptics, <laughs> but more the, the kind of critical thinking skeptic movement. And people who would say that they're quite rational people and I thought it was interesting to think about how you could possibly get the copying behavior into people like that who probably don't consider themselves to be superstitious but actually probably do things on a daily basis that do have roots in superstition in some way or another from probably belief systems that they don't actually ascribe to. For the benefit of the listeners at home who don't have the press release or the paper in front of them what we've got here is an analysis of game theory. Some researchers from the University of Pennsylvania who think they've managed to demonstrate how groups of individuals, each starting with distinct belief systems, can evolve coordinated sets of behaviours that are enforced by a consistent social norm. And where else do you pick up social norms but family and schools and, like, I guess religion as well? But they are talking about people who are coming from different belief backgrounds, so they're not necessarily all you know, sat in the same place of worship once a week being told the same stories. They're coming from all over and yet still somehow all agreeing that you have to salute a single magpie. Definitely know a lot of people who would consider themselves rational and sensible people who will not walk under ladders. Yes. And I grew up around a lot of theatre kids, so rampant superstition going on there. I used to work in a concert hall, actually, and um, one year my birthday fell on Friday the 13th, mm -hmm. and we thought it would be really cool to see if we could try, and th I think this is when Vine was still a thing, we thought it would be interesting to see how many superstitions we could break in 13 seconds <laughs> whilst filming. So I was spilling salt whilst going under a ladder with an umbrella up, and I think I, I said the name of the Scottish play on stage. And it was quite funny. It was, you know, just meant to be a, a joke. And our um, artistic director actually got quite cross that we had basically cursed the stage and we had to go <laughs> in and do the... I think you have to, like, you go out and have to throw salt over your shoulder or something to break the curse. It's you leave the room, turn around three times, spit on the floor and then knock before you're allowed back in. That's right. And we had to do something like that because we had a performance that evening and he was not taking any chances. That tickled me a little bit, actually. Yeah, I mean, every drama teacher I've had, every actor I've ever known will say that they don't really believe in the curse of Macbeth, but its they've heard so many stories, it's just not worth risking it. It makes you kind of wonder if maybe that goes to some sort of a, not necessarily evolutionary thing, but if it goes to a risk thing where maybe a superstitious behaviour kind of originated from someone not taking a risk. 
just in case, you know, there was a perceived danger there. And then over the years, it's just kind of changed down to people just doing something for no actual reason. Yeah, and some of them are super sensible. Like, you know, you don't walk under ladders because there might be someone up there who's going to drop a can of paint on your head. Yeah. Or um, another good theatre one is um, not whistling on stage, but that's because sets used to be operated by sailors who would communicate with one another across the stage by whistling. So that's right. if you whistled the wrong thing, you would get a flat dropped on your head and that, that would be the end of you. Absolutely would. I wonder how much of this could translate from the modern context, because I'm sure we've all heard the stories in school or at home of I don't want to lean back on your chair when you're just on two legs. There was a boy who leaned back on his chair and he's just on two legs. He died. And if that gets repeated often yes, enough... it just gets accepted into the kind of the psyche of, yeah. We used to get told not to put pens in our mouths because there was a girl who had fallen over and it had gone through the back of her throat and... She died. I'm not sure that happened, <laughs> but okay. Yeah, she probably did die. Yeah. Teachers are big culprits for that. I remember uh, PE teachers telling us about, oh, there was someone who was being silly with the javelins once and he died. And, oh, there was someone who didn't put the guard down on the big sander when they used it once and he lost three fingers. And we're like, is this true though, Mr. Rowley? Is it? Is it true? That kind of ties in with paranormal legends a little bit because there are some paranormal legends. For example, in America, there is a creature called the Goatman and... That was created in the 1950s by parents who didn't want their children going up into the woods <laughs> and hanging out and smoking and so on. And they invented this story about this creature that would get you if you were up in the woods and it became part of a modern culture. It was just accepted. And then the flip side of that actually did become a little bit devastating because then ghost hunters and monster hunters would go looking for this creature. And a few years ago, there's like this railway bridge where this train goes across this bridge and a few years ago a ghost hunter who was looking for this creature actually got hit by a train so yeah that that then created its own superstition don't cross the bridge because the goat man will get you it's like actually no it wasn't the goat man it was the train <laughs> <laughs> i feel like if you're so ardent in your hunt for ghosts that you've failed to spot a train that's really an all-consuming passion, the likes of which I cannot relate to. I mean, I think maybe this is the answer that we should be employing to stop people from trying to cross level crossings when the barriers are down. Yes. They do that all the time and get hit by it's trains. It's a serious problem that the, the railway authorities are like constantly trying to solve, so maybe we should just invent some sort of locomotive ghost and people might actually stop. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. <laughs> I think there's a line here that really sticks out to me. In their model, the authors Morsky and Axe assume that individuals are rational. Yes. Which is very sweet of them. That's, yeah, very generous. That they do not follow a norm blindly, but do so when their beliefs make it seem beneficial. So, don't throw a black cat through a mirror because you'll get a bunch of bad luck and an angry cat. There's a definite risk-reward calculation going on there. <laughs> Though I did once visit a town in Belgium called, uh, I think it's Ypres or Ypres, where they used to have a ceremony where they would throw a cat through the cathedral window at the top of the tower, and that was supposed to bring 
the town luck and they did it every year to bring luck <laughs> so don't rule out the throwing of cats is this like those spanish towns that push a donkey off the church roof at possibly. easter possibly um, i can't remember what the reasoning behind it was because i was a horrified teenager they they did what to cats <laughs> and then the gift shops would all sell little key rings of cats and yeah it was, it was shocking Given what I know about cats, cat is probably survivable, just about. Oh, I don't think they survived. It's not nice. The donkey, proper. Yeah, the donkey, absolutely screwed. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a quote here at the end from one of the authors, Morsky, who says, What I like about this work, and that's again him talking about his own paper, <laughs> is that these beliefs are made up superstitions, but they become real because everybody actually follows them. So you create this social reality. I'm really interested in testing that further. And what I think he's uncovered there is sociology. Yep. I mean, he's going to go out and start a religion now. If you hear about Morsky starting some kind of desert sex cult, then uh, it's, it's a way to spend an evening, I suppose. <laughs> and then we've also got another piece of research, this one coming to us from the Complexity Science Hub of Vienna. Not looking at small and upcoming superstitions, but looking at big gods, which I suppose, like, you take a superstition, you leave it long enough with the right group of people. A religion can start and get entrenched pretty readily. There's so much of the religious texts that we have in Western society, which come from basically good living guides from 4,000 years ago. Most of Leviticus is kind of a, a health tip for 2000 BC, like, Pigs aren't very clean animals, so probably don't eat them. We haven't figured out the proper way to cook shellfish yet, so probably don't eat them. <laughs> Wash your hands, please. Eventually, this gets spun out into a lot of other religions, but like they started off from a kind of common goal, so I can I can understand that. I like how this this press release really mirrors what I learned about the structures of religion from Discworld books. You know, you develop a society. You have to have something to believe in that then turns into a big god rather than, you know, being created and working from the opposite direction. Yeah. And I guess this is kind of like the goat man story in action that people come up with a moral, don't go into the woods, maybe don't stand in front of trains would now be the modern version, and that the belief might spring from that. Yes, and... Another, and I hate to be the one just to talk about paranormal, but that that is kind of what I do. <laughs> but um, <laughs> there is this theory um, in ufology, for example, which for those who can't tell is the study of UFOs and aliens and so on, flying saucers. Some people ascribe to the idea that these phenomena are not just coincidental, so you don't just happen to look up in the sky just as there's a light going over your head in the sky that they are purposeful coincidences and it's called synchronicity but then more recently probably in the like the last 40 to 50 years people have developed this idea that these purposeful coincidences are caused by a higher being and they wouldn't necessarily call it a god just that it's something that's controlling them and making those coincidences happen for them so when somebody comes along and says, actually, you seeing a little creature in the woods or you looking up and seeing something in the dark when you were expecting to is probably just a coincidence or you getting a phone call when you thought about your dead uncle. It's just probably a coincidence. They think that actually it was destined to happen. So they use it as a way of then um, 
kind of explaining things which actually already have an explanation, but one that they're not happy with. Do these people also happen to have gambling addictions? Because this is the same kind of logic that I've heard of people figuring out how to beat the house, how they're going to (laughs) win at roulette, because they know everything that I've lost until now, that's because I'm going to win big next time. Possibly. I suspect that there is some research that could be done. I think there's so much scope for research into people who have paranormal beliefs and people who have strong paranormal beliefs and the other beliefs that they have in other parts of their lives. It's probably a lot of correlation and crossover, but... Yeah, it is the same kind of reasoning, definitely. And then if you fail, it's not because you messed up. It's because you were meant to, like something had guided you to to mess up and not win that bet. Ah, yes, the old everything happens for a reason defense. Yeah. (laughs) I've never heard of serendipity coming from literally on high, but if that is what people find is a reasonable explanation for having seen or experienced certain things, then I can't tell them they didn't have that experience. I can maybe question the circumstances in which they've reached that conclusion, but <laughs> but I think I'll leave it to lead author Harvey Whitehouse, who says, It's been a debate for centuries why humans, unlike other animals, cooperate in large groups for genetically unrelated individuals. In almost every region of the world where we have data, moralizing gods tend to follow, not precede, an increase in social complexity. So, morals come before gods, and superstitions come before religions. Probably, I feel like that's a safe inference. Yeah. You know, part of the process. What about ghosts? Where do they go when we're done with them? We've had the before, we've got the (laughs) medium, and now we're looking at the after. Ghosts have got to go somewhere, right? Probably. I don't know. I'm not the paranormal researcher here. They have to go somewhere. I wish they would go somewhere. (laughs) It does get a little (laughs) bit boring (laughs) having to just constantly debunk them all the time. But yes, I suppose it really does, though, where where people consider ghosts go or cannot go depends on their personal beliefs, I think. I mean, on my experience, ghosts are definitely attracted to theatres. I think every single one is haunted. Yes, yes. And some people consider that lucky. But the really interesting thing is that by default, people, if if it's not a ghost that they're expecting to experience, who they know, uh, so they know the history of or they knew personally, quite often by default, they will presume that the ghost is malicious in some way. Um, so there's a, a generalized fear that they've got a haunting by a ghost that they don't know and therefore they may be in danger. So a lot of people do seem, uh, from my experience, to think that things that hang around in ghostly form aren't necessarily good people, or weren't good people when they were alive. Well, the research from the Society for Personality and Social Psychology would back you up on that. I've got a paper here, a bunch of researchers, mostly from the University of North Carolina, have looked into where the afterlife gets to go on the mortal plane, I suppose. There's a great quote at the start here from one of the authors, Kurt Gray, who says, People especially see the minds of good and evil people as continuing to exist. That's why there's a heaven and a hell, but no place where great bowlers go. (laughs) That we know of. That we know of. And they've got a whole panel here, seven studies all digging into where 
ghosts get to go, depending on the people that they were or might have been, depending on the places that they are as well. And I've gone through this. I feel like this might be the favorite, my favorite study that we've talked about in all of 2019 so far. You can't, you basically never do this much work on a press release, but you genuinely have the paper printed out and highlighted and annotated. It's good fun trying to figure out what kind of ghosts people are inclined to believe in and where they are inclined to believe that they get to go. I am very interested in the idea that the very good people get to have transcendent immortality and just sort of atomize themselves throughout the atmosphere or something so just their spirit is floating. Mm. Yes, like you said, that people tend to believe that spirits anywhere that is haunted that, that tends toward a negative kind of experience. The first of the seven experiments that is being related in this paper finds that people are generally motivated for good people to become immortal, but have an independent tendency to perceive both good and evil individuals as living on after death. So, so long as you are passionately one way or the other, you might achieve this immortality in the transcendent, like you say, higher plane of being, or the trapped sense in which you get stuck in a theatre or cave or forest. And they pick apart, depending on the environment. If something is a confined space, people are more inclined to perceive and believe that there is a negative energy there. It's like, bad ghosts go to ghost jail, but good ghosts get to go play on the ghost farm with all the other ghosts. <laughs> they have lots of open space to roam and stretch their ghost legs, whereas all the bad ghosts are kept in the box. That's a really good analogy as well, because... From my limited experience, I've actually investigated two places that used to be prisons that are said to be haunted, and both of the prisons um, were said to be haunted by ex-prisoners who had not been able to move on because of the ill deeds that they had done in their life. And a friend of mine in America, who also does similar research there, got called into a jail that was, they had closed the jail down, but only just, so the prisoners had been moved out, but the building was still as it had been, you know, months prior. And um, they were investigating the alleged haunting of this place and the prison guards were saying that prisoners who were imprisoned there and were serving time there were absolutely terrified that um, the place was haunted by previous prisoners. But interestingly, from their perspective, as, as people who were serving time, they were also terrified that the ghosts of their victims were coming back to punish them. And so if there was a strange noise or there was water dripping or it was cold, they believed that something was there to punish them. And that kind of goes back to an old sort of still relevant folkloric pattern that you see where ghosts always have this purpose. And ghosts, uh, especially in popular culture, like a Christmas carol, for example, when the ghosts give Scrooge a warning, ghosts have traditionally always had a purpose and that's either to protect people, to punish people, to warn them of impending doom. And it really does depend on your personal perspective as a ghost experiencee, how you interpret what's going on around you. That is, um, yeah, one of the things I felt this study kind of skipped over, which relates back to the, the prisoners thinking that it might be, you know, a victim come to punish them or something, Yeah, is there's definitely quite a few ghosts of historical figures who weren't necessarily particularly good or bad people but did die in sort of dramatic and violent ways so i think there's yeah um um Anne Boleyn, i think is one who is supposedly still wandering the halls of a palace somewhere because 
she died under, you know, not great circumstances, if we're honest. Mm. That wasn't yeah. that wasn't the most peaceful way to go. <laughs> and you do find as well that um, a lot of historic houses will just have people that worked there, so serving maids and stable boys and so on, who are said to still haunt the place. And again, yeah, like you say, they didn't necessarily have a tragic end. They're just sort of... The, the kind of idea is that they're just caught in what they used to do when they were alive, so they just repeat what they were doing. Lots of theatre ghosts seem to have a, a similar pattern of being people who worked there and spent a lot of time there. And I I do know of one theatre ghost who had a a distressing end, but that was a slightly different situation. <laughs> uh, the theatre was formerly a swimming pool, and... It was a, a little girl who had drowned while it was a swimming pool. Oh dear. But who still turns up on the first night of shows to watch. Theatre ghosts are pretty creepy, to be honest. I have to say, as someone who doesn't believe in ghosts, there was one theatre that we investigated, and sitting in an empty auditorium in the dark, there was something very creepy about that um, anyway. And yeah. It's definitely a sort of liminal space because it only has that um, that activity under very specific circumstances. Yes. Which always adds to creepiness. Context-specific, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Comes back around. Well, one final piece that I'm just going to make a very quick mention of here because I think it sums itself up pretty quickly at the start, also from the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. They open with a Star Trek reference, which I feel is going to ground this episode for any of the nerds out there listening, saying they've been talking about ghosts for a very long time. Don't worry, we've got some sci-fi as well. <laughs> Quote, Star Trek's Spock would not be surprised. People are illogical. New research exploring American liberals and conservatives shows that regardless of political affiliation, tribal instincts kick in, and people's ability to think logically suffers when it comes to arguments related to their political belief systems. However, when confronted with unsound reasoning in opposing groups, people become better able to identify flawed logic. Which I would just sum up as, self-belief is the most powerful belief. I'm very disappointed this doesn't offer any like solutions to not being able to discuss politics without it turning into a great big fight. Well, there's only so much we can do, I guess. I think it's quite difficult when people research why people believe in certain paranormal ideas. Uh, as someone who comes into contact with people who have these experiences, I... So I'm aware of, obviously, this research, but I'm also aware of, of what they say. But at the same time... I'm also aware that I'm perceiving, which kind of goes to the logical reasoning paper, so I'm perceiving what eyewitnesses say whilst also being aware of the scientific research and seeing the differences, but then is it just the way that I'm perceiving those differences? Paranormal phenomena, wherever it's based, largely relies on eyewitness testimony and the investigator then using that testimony in the correct way. So yeah, it's a bit of a, a minefield. I think paranormal research, seeing as so much of it has come from journals about sociology and psychology, does edge up against human opinion much more than the chemistry or the physics that we get to talk about, and definitely a lot more than the astrophysics. And definitely when there's a person involved and directly in front of you telling about something that they have experienced, like you can have a critical mind, but being critical of their experience is never going to win you any friends. No, absolutely. and. Everything that is investigated of this nature, I think it always has to yeah, it always has to be considered in 
the context of socio-cultural and economic and religious beliefs and so on by its very nature it's human so yeah i think we're always going to learn new things about why people believe in certain weird ideas thank you so much for your time this evening Haley. if people want to hear more about you and your research where can they find you the podcast has a website at spooktator.co.uk but it's available from all most podcast apps i haven't checked all of them but most decent ones and I actually write about my own research on my blog, hayleyisaghost.co.uk. When I've had a case study or something in the media has kind of caught my attention, I'll kind of write my analysis of it there. And that's Haley H-A-Y-L-E-Y, isaghost.co.uk. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time again. Thank you. And if you want to hear more from any of the rest of the people on the Stimulus Network, you can find us all at stimulus.network. But until next time, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. And bye from me. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.